Hi, Nathan. Hi, Damon. How are you? Very well, thanks. Hi, Barry. See ya. Hi, Damon. I'm Hi. so happy to see you. It is, it is nice to see you sitting in a very sunlit uh, corner window that you appear to be in. Nice choice. Thank you. Um, for those of you, I mean, I'd be very surprised if people on this call don't know Damon, um, but Damon is the man behind 2040, uh, an extraordinary documentary um, which kind of projects what, the, what 2040 would look like if we all acted on the environmental, social, economic solutions that are currently available to us. So it's this beautiful vision of what the world could look like in 20 years' time based on solutions that are here right now for us to kind of act on. And it's, it's really touching. It's framed as a, as a letter to his daughter. It's a really beautiful work, and he kind of surveys all of the incredible work happening from Bangladesh to, to London to Byron Bay and um, super inspiring. So, Damon, thanks for being with us. Do you want to kick us off with an acknowledgement of country? Yeah, so I'm... Um coming to you from the lands of the Arakal people on the Bunjalung Nation um, and, as always, pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. It's pretty special land that we're on and I feel very lucky in this time with everything that's going on around the world to be living where I do. We, um, we are surrounded with nature here. It's uh, very lucky to be able to uh, not feel confined and trapped in an inner city. Mm. And um, if... If you'd like to share the country that you're, you're currently on, please do so in the chat function. We'd love to see who's zooming in and where you're zooming in from around Australia and beyond. And um, one thing we've started doing at Small Giants in our Monday morning huddles, which is really beautiful, is a lot of us are identifying the country we were born on mm -hmm. and then the country we now live and work on, which mm -hmm. creates the link. It's quite beautiful. And um, some of our people at Small Giants were born in California. So this morning, the person who presented it was acknowledging country in California and now she's on Bunurong country. So it's quite beautiful. Mm. Uh, so let's, um, let's drop in before we move into our chat with Damon. Um, wherever you are, let's take a moment to settle into our bodies, into our space. Closing down the eyes if you feel comfortable to do so. And just feeling yourself sitting there and breathing. And let's take a nice long inhale, filling in the sides of our bodies, our lungs. And an out breath, releasing tension, kind of letting go. And again, inhale. And relaxing outward. There you go. And just letting your breath return to its natural rhythm.
and let your senses be awake so that you're listening to and feeling all of the life that's around you. Mm. And when you're ready, coming back to the space. So, Damon, something we learned from, um, we had Arna Rubenstein on the, show, in the chat last week, and he was telling us about a, a golden check-in. Basically, it's an acronym for kind of questions that we can ask each other when we're doing a check-in, and they're really great. And I thought maybe we could start with a, a golden check-in with you. I'll, um, I'll just list off some of the, the questions, and then you can find which ones you want to speak to. So there's, how are you going overall? What have you been occupied with? What have you liked recently? What are you excited about and what support do you need? Mm. So I, uh, I, I guess I'd start by saying I feel very lucky that um, to be in a position we're in. We're able to really connect as a family up here. We've, we've had that opportunity and um, I feel I've done so much travelling in the last three years to, to, to actually stop and really collect, connect with my family, especially our six-year-old daughter has been really special for me. We have an eight-month-old who's not that into sleeping at the moment, so that's kind of thrown a really interesting drip-feed torture spanner into the works of just no sleep and trying to homeschool and trying to juggle work. So I feel very full in that sense um, and uh, but fulfilled at the same time because of the connection and that we're all in this together and doing that. So um, that's me on a personal level. I... I think like a lot of people have been using this time to contemplate what this all means, this extraordinary time we're in. What are the reflections? What are the learnings? Um, what does it look like on the other side of this? What are the opportunities? Um, what are we up against? I think we all probably were on this call because we have uh, a sense of wanting a better outcome on the other side of this, but I think there are very real obstacles preventing that at the moment that are starting to assemble in terms of um, what stimulus packages are going to go towards. So I'm really trying to get my head around that uh, and what that's looking like. Um, and also just tuning in with friends and family about their own thoughts and feelings in this time. And, and the consensus I'm getting is that um, this has been a, a great trimming of the fat, so to speak, that people have really seen where they need things and where they've been in it, in it excess. And I, I describe it as I think that pre-corona we were probably driving this big stretch pink Hummer and we had the windows open drinking champagne there's a jacuzzi in the back and then we parked the Hummer in the garage for a couple of months and we kind of realised that it might be okay just to have a Toyota Camry on the other side of this, that um, we don't necessarily need all the things that we've been um, wallowing and, and embracing and indulging in. So. Um, I think a lot of people I've spoken to, I've spoken to are, are kind of enjoying this time in a strange way and, and are a little reluctant to get back to business as normal. So 
Um, no doubt there's economic impacts there and health, of course. That, that aside, I think just the, the, the dizziness of people's lives pre-corona, um, a lot of people don't want that back. And um, that excites me to hear that, that we've been given this opportunity to actually reflect. And I think we might see a quick bounce back and people might rush back out and sort of get socialising very quickly again, but I wonder if that will last. I wonder if people will, will then have a clear comparison of what we've got now and, and what we might have in a, in a few months, but then actually find an equilibrium in there and that we won't go back to the, to the dizzying heights of what we had before, um, which, of course, as we all know, is exactly what we need socially and ecologically is to not go back to what we had before. That that's We're already standing on a precipice. We're right at a cliff edge in terms of the decisions we make um, and that we can't go back. Uh, and uh, so I've just been sort of working with people behind the scenes about how we tell those stories, how we get these ideas out there because this is a moment, but how do we get that through um, given what we're up against, especially in our country, how concentrated, concentrated our media is. The, the gatekeepers of our narrative are very, um, are very powerful and they're also having discussions about the, how they can capitalise on this moment and, unfortunately, um, they're, 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 they're steaming ahead on a few things that aren't, aren't going to serve us. Oh, there was so much in there. One thing I, I'd love to hone in on is the, the point you made around um, what's essential versus what's excess mm. and this, the idea that, well, the truth that what's excess is actually driving inequality you know, mm. and ecological damage. Mm. How have you kind of navigated what's essential for you and what's, what's mm. excess and how do we continue to hold that beyond this time? So, yeah, the, the statistics are that we, we consume about 100 billion metric tonnes of resources every year on the planet, 100 billion. So that's, you know, fossil fuels and forests and plastics and minerals and metals, and that the earth can only sustain 50 billion, right? So we're already overshooting that mark, almost double, and we're on track for 180 billion. So if you break that down to individuals, it's around, in developed countries, about 27 metric tonnes of resources per person a year. Whereas someone in a developing country, like a Bangladesh and whatnot, is using about two tons. So there's a huge discrepancy there. So the research I've looked into has sort of said that th this, this narrative we've had for so long about GDP and growth equaling happiness, like that's, that's the story we've been sold. I think we really see in moments like this what an illusion that is, that so many of us are finding happiness in, in ways that we, we haven't before in these quieter moments. And that even if you compare certain countries, say the US has got an incredibly high GDP, but even countries now like Costa Rica, who have a sixth the GDP of, of America, are reporting all these metrics on well-being and health and longevity that are far surpassing America. So I think that we have this, this moment now to obliterate that story and say that having stuff and having constant growth and accumulating these things, just it just doesn't equate to, to being happy. So from my own account of that, I feel that my last six months, I've sort of, um, you know, very much been on this quest to get 2040 out there and see as many people and do screenings and show films and at, at, at the expense of my own health and at the expense of burning an extraordinary amount of carbon in terms of my flight and whatnot. So that's that's my input into those resources. I've gone way over. So it's been really lovely for me to, to strip that right back and realise that probably 80% of those events I didn't need to attend in person. I mean, sometimes it's lovely to have that face-to-face 
that in, that connection, that essence exchange that you have with a real person or in a group of people. But I've done so many things lately just on the Zoom or even done interviews for, for documentaries for different groups on the Zoom with a cameraman in my house, you know, things that, you know, I won't go back to what I was doing. There's no doubt about that because the value of spending this time with my family and seeing the connection and seeing my daughter's face light up now and the laughter we're having because dad's home a lot, mm. I'm not going to give that up for anything. So that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a done deal. I can say that right now, that that change, that change is going to be permanent for me um, no matter what the push and pull of that might be. So um, that's the obvious one, but also just things around food. Like I, I feel in this time I've got to know my local food growers more than ever before and check in with them and see how they're going and understand if it's the meat, where are we getting the meat from? If it's the vegetables, how's it grown? What's um, the own our food security risk in our particular region? Questions I'm having with my neighbours that we never have had before, um, because as you know, as we all know, this isn't gonna be, this is the dress rehearsal probably for for pandemics that are going to come in our future. Um, many sort of um, okay researchers in this area talk about much larger threats than this. We kind of got lucky in a lot of ways. If, if there was a sort of an avian bird flu strain, it could have a mortality rate of 50 to 60%. So, so we need to use this as an opportunity because the more we are encroaching on nature and creating intensive agriculture systems, we're going to generate more pandemics. That's just a given. Um, and then you throw in the climate shocks, the more bushfires, all these things that are going to be part of our, our future. We are living with a very 20th century model and we, and, and we are trying to deal with 21st century problems with that 20th, 20th century model and we have to upgrade that operating system desperately and I think a lot of that comes back to localising again, making sure we're building resilience in our own communities, in our own country, so that as these things happen again, we're, we're, we're better prepared. I think we've, we've seen the system has been exposed and the flaws of it and there's, there's numerous from healthcare and whatnot. I, I was reading yesterday that um, because of the, the shutting down of restaurants in the US, there's now about 700,000 pigs that are euthanised every week um, because there's nowhere for them to go. So, I mean, this is a broken system and I think we're all, we're all seeing that now. So uh, how can we move through that and how can we start to just, I don't know, slow down, nurture, think about our own local environments instead of this big uh, hulking global system that, you know, as we know is, is, is deleterious in a lot of ways. Damo, the thing that I love amongst the many things that I love about you, is uh, the ability to hold the tension of knowing the things that you know, of the information of the apocalypse, <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and continuing to put forward a vision for the future. I think I spoke about it actually in my Rites of Passage podcast with Anna. It was a really potent moment for me in the podcast where he said, you know, a really key thing to do during the transformation phase is to have a vision for the future and to state that vision and to really hold it and own it and be with that vision and for it to be witnessed by the community. And that's exactly what you've done and continue to do. And I'm interested if you have any advice for everyone on this call because a lot of questions come up in this community around holding the tension of all the things that are against us in the narrative mm -hmm. and the world we wish to leave our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. There is, and for me, just to say, saying that to Anna, I, it made me cry because I thought, oh, my God, mm -hmm. I, I long for the vision and it's worthy and uh, we should speak out our visions for the future. So how do you do that? 
Yeah, I mean, that's it, I think. I, I think that what we've done um, probably in the last sort of 20 or 30 years is um, just expect people to be motivated by a single thread of 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 a of, of the problem, like that we bash people over the head with it. And all the psychologists I spoke to in researching the film said that we have, all of us, this window of tolerance. Like there's only so much information we can take before we disengage. It's just too much. And so maybe the way we communicated or told stories 25 years ago, you could get away with those kind of wow moments. We think, I didn't know that. That's extraordinary. But now we're saturated with it. Every day we're hearing two or three stories that are just like, Oh, so so how do we engage people when they're full and at capacity? And I think that we have to we have to use visioning, and we have to we have to still tell us still tell the problem, but 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 frame it in a solution story. So you can say a great example is documentaries. You can have eighty nine minutes of how bad things are, and then three minutes at the end of like, hey, but sign up to this and check this out. That, that's done. I think we've actually got to say, here's five minutes of the problem. Here's 85 minutes of all the things we can do about it. So it's a very different way of looking at it. And it's, prof- it's profoundly different because I think one is organising from trauma. Yeah. And the other is organising from possibilities. That's, that's and- it. Yeah. And it's also saying, one is saying, and this is a, particularly pertinent with the climate story, is one is a story of depravity, sacrifice, giving up fear, whereas the other one is gains, excitement, opportunity, inspiration. So as a human being, which one are you going to align with in a really hectic world? And that's what I've discovered in the last five years, that, yes, there's major reason for concern, but what's being neglected is the way to frame this as this incredible opportunity to actually have stronger communities and cleaner air and skies and, and live with less and be happier with less, and have healthier food. All these things we're sort of talking about now about this this crisis. No one's doing that. I mean, people aren't using that narrative, and we know why. There's a, there's a host of reasons from, you know, again, these social media, that there are algorithms, there's a system in place that is designed to be emotional and, and antagonistic, and sometimes a positive story and a solution story doesn't get the cut through because it isn't sensationalised in a lot of ways. So it's very hard to get through, plus we know that there are people telling our stories that have huge vested interests in the status quo. So that's that's a real concern, which we can talk about if you want to, but, but, but the majority of people just don't understand. And if you don't understand, how can you care? And if you don't care, how can you take action? It's the Jane Goodall quote. So um, that's why I think it's more important than ever to start sharing our visions and our ideas and what excites us and what this future could look like in this moment of, of, of pause that we're in. And, and share our radical ideas because this is the time, for God's sake. I mean, the decisions that are going to get made in the next probably six months could determine the next decade or, or 100 years in terms of the where we send this huge amount of stimulus money, not just in Australia but right around the world. If, it's, if we put that money into extractive industries and gas projects and fossil fuels, which is what our government's looking like, this is going to have a huge implication for, for, the, for all biodiversity and for future generations. So... We, we've got to get that vision out there and, 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 and talk about it in a way that is exciting and creating jobs and cleaner air and, and stronger communities. Damon, what was the process for you um, formulating kind of the vision for 2040? Because, you know, that was a pretty courageous thing to do. You know, that was a few years ago now that you 
lent into that and, and shared that vision with us. I wonder if you can kind of use that as an example to, to help us. Uh, all right, so I wanted to take all the politics out of it, so try to, try to remove even the words climate change in a way and actually think how do we communicate this vision based on human needs, like based on no matter what your political leaning is or religious persuasion, whatever it might be, what are the fundamentals that we all agree on? And they are probably healthy food, security, better future for our kids, the stronger communities. Like that's the way I think we need to communicate and that's how I base the vision. So that even if you didn't think climate change was happening, that you'd want to do every solution I show in the film anyway because getting carbon in the soil is great for water retention and healthier food. Empowering girls and women, yes, it helps with sort of population and resource, but it's also just a terrific thing to do that would transform society. So um, trying to steer away from this sort of language that was around carbon emissions and negative and net zero and anthropogenic and all these things that just befuddle so many people and bring it back to, to stories that we value in our hearts and, and that we've all evolved to tell stories. We haven't evolved to read graphs and, and, and understand data and logic and I think it's not their fault that scientists, you know, that they're convinced that next graph will convince people and they just show that graph, they'll, they'll get it. <laughs> And that's just, that's not it. They need help. They need people to disseminate those graphs. They need songwriters and musicians and poets and storytellers to, to make those graphs more relatable and exciting and fun and accessible and use clever analogies. And so that's what I wanted to do. I, I wanted to have an experiment in that and, and to, um, to throw up an idea, an idea of discussion, even if people disagreed with my vision of what it is or, or the children that I'd spoken to. Great, but let's discuss it. I mean, you might not want driverless cars, and excellent. But if we don't have that discussion now, other people, entities, corporations, they're making those decisions right now. So they love it if we're kind of just passively meditating or thinking, hey, just be present, it's fine. And, you know, that, that, that kind of worked three centuries ago. But now there are people orchestrating the future as we speak. So we need to be involved in that and we need to understand that we can have a role in that. And we need to share up ideas and, and put it out there and, and log them into this collective intelligence that we've created through, the, through social media and whatnot and not be passive in that and not be reactive. They love it when we're reactive. You know, this is what Steve Bannon said when, when Trump got in, just flood the zone with shit. And what he meant by that was just pollute it with information, have Trump saying random shit every day because we'll all get focused on that and get distracted. And all the things that be happening behind the scenes, the policy decisions, the rolling back of environmental protections, all those things that are happening are occurring while we're distracted by the circus. So it's so important not to buy into that. And it's tough and it's, it gets you emotional and you want to just vent and say, but that's what they want you to do. That's, that's the grand plan. And I think a lot of us in this time, you see it especially, I mean, look at the, the information that's flying around at the moment. We have a a more polluted information environment than we do ecological environment at the moment. How do you make the truth? All the conspiracy is flying around. But this is this is what this is perfect. This is the distraction, and we've just got to be super wary of that and, and think about everything that we throw into that pond and everything we contribute on on online because it is it does make a difference. Damo, how are you grounding yourself in? Because I I love what you're saying. What you're saying is a classic. Victor Frankl strategy. Victor Frankl was a survivor of Auschwitz and the Holocaust and he, um, um, for those of you who don't know, was a psychotherapist who um, developed logotherapy, which was the idea that we just need a, a, a focus of meaning in our lives. <clears throat> but he said a great quote, which is what you're talking about. 
is between uh, the stimulus and the response. Mm. It's, I think this was his quote. I'm going to misquote him. I do that all the time, but this is my interpretation of the quote. Yeah. Between the stimulus and the response is a breath or yeah. otherwise thought of as freedom. So how do we, how do you return to freedom in space between? Mm-hmm. Because you, you do get a lot coming at you in particular, a lot of reactionary energy. I know that you've been attacked for being too hopeful in your vision for the future, mm-hmm. that you are somehow, you somehow must be accountable to the apocalypse vision. So I think that like there, there's, <laughs> there's a lot of subtlety and nuance here yeah. as we vision forward together. Um, yeah, well, you, you probably know me well enough, Bez, that that's, that's my downfall is I haven't worked that out yet. I'm not quite sure how I, how I properly ground myself and that's a, a concern for me and for my family is that I do get caught up in everything and the urgency of what's needed and the love of my children and, and all the children that I, I, wanted, I want us to act faster and sometimes I think the work can be compromised by doing that or I'm not at my best doing that, but I do need to find ways of, of taking deep breaths and slowing down. And I have my own um, methods, um, immersing in nature or jumping in the water or, or meditation and whatnot, but my brain is very, it enjoys ramping up quickly and, and finding information and seeing if there's a way through. So um, I do struggle with that. I, I, um, I'm, compl- I'm contemplating sort of more dramatic measures at the moment. I think I might need some sort of... Uh, Retirement? Well, <laughs> I was more thinking like a psilocybin hit. Or some kind of deep um, <laughs> um, plant medicine um, wake up, uh, which has helped me in the past. <laughs> so um, a few people that started circling me at the moment. In fact, someone asked me to to do a film about it. Um, and they've got some money to to do that. And I've always been interested in it, but they've also presented the opportunity of a you know a few journeys if I want to. So I'm I'm thinking that could be really good for me at the moment. Um, but no, I, I love what I do, Barry, like you do, and I, I I feel like such a connection to this as 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 you know life's purpose, meaning, whatever you want to call it, and and you know I find it hard to shut down, and sometimes I don't want to shut down. I, I want to keep going and learning and 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 finding those ways in um, because I just understand the urgency of this situation. We're just such at a critical juncture, and um, and so what about and so what about the lens, Damo? What about the fact that You've been attacked for having too positive a lens for mm. the idea that we get to say what the vision, like I, it's, I think it's yeah. a fascinating thing because people want you to be beholden to trauma or something. I'm not sure. And maybe you could speak to how yeah, we yeah, boldly give a vision of love and that be practical. Yeah, it's interesting that optimism has become the radical position, isn't it? Like that's... You know, that's that great the, the quote I, I often say for people that have heard stuff. It's the it's the Raymond Williams that you know to be truly radical is to make hope possible, rather than despair convincing. And I understand that because people cynicism is all pervasive and understandably because I I think of even the kids I interviewed making twenty forty and and just the the joy they had and the optimism, the purity and the innocence of what we could achieve. We all had that, and some of us still have it. But then the inertia of this system crushes that in so many people and so they're scared to open up again and say hey maybe we could do this because i've been hurt before i know how this goes people are horrible the system's broken those in power don't give a shit i am not going to let myself dream like that again so i get it and i have those moments myself sometimes of thinking shit you know is this all a bit utopian or whatnot you know but then what i come back to is that i've 
what I what I've done that I think a lot of people haven't in the last five years is that I've actually lived it and I've seen it and I've met these people and I've shaken their hands and I've looked in their eyes. So I know, I have a knowing in me that isn't just read online or seen on social media. It's that I do think we can do this. In fact, I'm I know we can do this, not just that I think. And that only comes from seeing these extraordinary farmers around the world, meeting these passionate seaweed enthusiasts, meeting these people that are trying to educate and empower women around the world. There are so many of these people that we don't hear about in the mainstream narrative as for the reasons I've mentioned before. So I do feel very proud that I, I'm, a, I'm a glass half full person in this moment because I do believe in us as human beings and I know we can do this. And I, there's, a, there's a huge majority of us, the majority of us that care but we have created a system that is pushed to the top. People that, that don't have empathy as much, they, they are rewarded for dominating, uh, winning competition, playing this game very well that steps on other people and pushes them down. They get to a position of power, then that power allows them to set the rules. So we have a very minor group of people, really, that we've just allowed to have the power who are controlling over the majority of us that give a shit and want a much better world. So that's where I have my hope. That's what keeps me getting up every morning. And I'd say in terms of it being too optimistic, I was very careful in the film to make sure that it was a muscular hope, that it was grounded in, in facts so that everything I show exists now. It wasn't this sort of utopian fantasy saying, hey, wouldn't it be great if this happened and this is probably going to happen. It was very heavily researched to say, no, here are the solutions. The only ones I'm going to show my daughter, because that would be terrible parenting for me to say this Pollyanna kind of, it's going to be great, honey. Everything I show her exists now, can be scaled up and has potential to be transformative. So, you know, I'm, I'm happy to take, you know, you always get criticism. I mean, Sugar Film was a whole new level of, of um, criticism. So uh, it's fine, but I feel very comfortable in my optimism in that I do believe it. <laughs> and, um, and I'm happy to say that. And I think more people that get exposed to this topic and do a deep dive start to feel it too. And that's the reason I made the bloody film was to try and inspire people to say, no, we got this, we can do this, let's go, just keep believing, keep getting up in the morning, keep focusing on the good people because it's all there. We're not waiting for any miracle solution. We're not waiting for the magic bullet. We actually, in this moment as we talk right now, could turn the whole thing around in 15 or 20 years and we've got to remember that. I love it. What I hear you say and what's coming up for me a lot as well in terms of how we do this, like how do we do this, you know, we can give you 10,000 links of things to join and places to go and people to meet. That's that's fine. But I think there are some principles and one of them is you have to double down. If this is your central theory of change, mm. that connection is how we get there. Not It's not a game of who wins. It's, yeah. it's, a, it's about connection. So that's number one. Yeah. Number yeah. two, therefore, thus and so forth, relationships are everything. Yeah, and those yeah. relationships should be had outside your bubble and your yeah. kind of self, you know, perpetuating whatever yeah. you're in. Get outside of it and get into other bubbles and, and start to create links and fibrous connections between people living different realities. So make sure you've got unexpected members around the table during conversation. And the third one, I can't remember, but it was good. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I'd say that. My, my version of that is saying, how do we move from a competitive, rivalrous, extractive system to one that is based on symbiosis and interconnectedness? Yeah. 
but but that that's but that like I gotta say it like twenty five thousand. Oh yeah, that my third one, my third one. <laughs> Showing up. Yeah, we have to show up and continue yeah. to show up. Sometimes you're not going to have anything you can even say. You don't even know what you feel and think. But the showing up yeah. is incredibly important right now. We we can't give up. It's not tools down. It's show up yeah. Um, yeah. with that open heart as a structural idea. Yeah. This is not soft power anymore. This is where the rubber meets the road, especially when we're all in lockdown. Yeah. I mean. Spot on. It's. um. And that's, I think, the biggest challenge. How do we get people to show up in a time where, you know, a lot of us, it's okay. It's like, yeah, it's not perfect, but gee whiz, we're doing a lot better than other countries and I kind of like my life and it's comfortable and I'm happy and do I really have to find out oh, if they're going to do that and roll back that environmental protection? Does that really matter? Like it's tough. It's tough when we're comfortable. And it's... Uh, that's our challenge, and and you're right. Very, you know, it's um, that's the bit I worry about sometimes. Is that it's all too easy, you know, and especially in our country, we've had it so good for so long. We've been incredible amounts of growth, and and one of the richest countries in the world. And so, with that comes an apathy, and um, in a time where we need the opposite. So, um, but again, it's 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 having faith, you know, and little moments. Nature's going to keep nudging us. We saw that with the bushfires. Once that smoke hit Sydney, once that smoke hit the Melbourne suburbs, you know, people changed and there was incredible momentum um, before COVID. And I can say that from our point of view, what was going on behind the scenes and the corporations and the governments reaching out and like unbelievable. Um, so whether that continues post this, this particular break, I don't know, but things have changed. You know, we're not going to go back um, permanently to what we were pre-fires. And I think COVID's only... Uh, pushed up even more uh, the importance of relying on data and science and listening to science, getting the politics out of it, removing the ideology, all the things that our government's eventually done here, um, they're going to have to do with climate eventually. And I think there's really wonderful examples around the world of what other countries have done. I often talk about Taiwan, who has the same population as us, but as soon as corona started, it was just amazing what they did. They implemented the testing, shut down the schools, the government stepped back, this, this group of experts stepped in, based, made decisions on data, had a central command centre, had a media arm that went out every hour to the public radio and television networks, really clear, concise messaging that was just one message, one voice, you know, and I think they've had two or three deaths uh, in the whole time. So I hope those discussions are going on right now about some kind of centre for these pandemics or climate shocks moving forward. We need, we need to be ready. Um, and, I, and I think that's the wake up. We need a safety net. We need strong healthcare. We need food. All those things that we have to value more than we ever have moving forward after these crises. There was a question earlier in the chat, um, Damon, asking, based on your research, how likely do you think it will be that leaders will embrace radical ideas? Um, yep. but I, I mean, I would go even a step further as to say, how do we kind of separate our dependence on those leaders to implement? Yeah, so the positive stories, I guess, of corona have been that there has been some radical ideas that have been implemented. So the two that come to mind are um, uh, Amsterdam initiating Kate Raworth's donor economic model, which we show in the film, which, again, you know, is extraordinary that they're going to do that in a rebuild post-corona, and that really brings in ecological and social boundaries to the economic system. 
and also that Spain are now um, looking at very much implementing a universal basic income as as a permanent aspect of their economy as well, which you know would have been laughable probably mm-hmm. three or four months ago. So um, this is the moment; it's it's possible. But to your second point, I would say that we we, we often forget this that historically any great change hasn't come from our leaders. Like we have to teach our leaders how to lead, that they've never shown us the way and that this incredible momentum that we had post-fires at school level, at the business community, even now what the businesses are doing is, is amazing. What the state level are doing in terms of climate change, I mean, this is, again, a story we don't hear enough about. I was on a summit last week where, where they had four national, uh, sort of four state energy ministers on the same call just to hear what they're doing. I mean, South Australia is going to be 100% renewable probably by 2025. WA is on track. Tasmania is pledged 100% renewable, 200% renewable by 2040. Um, Even Queensland has just approved the largest solar farm in Australia. I mean, what's going on at a state level is huge reason to be hopeful. So that's where we need to be looking for leadership. But we also need to understand that it's us and that we have to keep the pressure up. We have to keep things happening in our local communities, at our school, at our own workplace. And eventually we show the leaders what we want and we get the tipping point. And that historically that tipping point has never been linear. There's never a sort of do X plus X equals this. It just comes at a random moment. It's the Rosa Parks on the bus moment. All this momentum happens and then suddenly something happens and the floodgates open. And I, I would categorically say after my experience that we're not far from that tipping point. I mean, if, if COVID hadn't happened, I would have thought even sooner, but still it's going to happen in the next two or five years. There's going to be this grounds where we finally get over that peak and there'll be huge changes. And I wouldn't be surprised if the changes then get implemented very quickly uh, through leadership, through policies, through just... And, and it it's just a nudge. In Victoria, there was a council meeting the other day in one of the councils, I think it was Glenara Council, and they were not going to go um, declare a climate emergency because they weren't. And then a group of um, local activists sat down with one of the council members and kind of gave him all the data and had a, you know, two-hour sesh with him and he walked into the council meeting and gave an impassioned speech about why it's a good idea to go uh, carbon neutral and declare a climate emergency and then they did yeah. because... It just needed a nudge, you know? Yeah, so that's 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 the answer, I think, Nath, is we, we're close to this, to not lose hope of that and to not rely on our leaders to do it. Like that's that's the biggest failing we can have is just that, that expectation that they're going to take, take control and do it. It's not going to happen that way. And it's yeah. never happened that way. From suffragettes to abolitionists to human rights, it's never been the leaders that have done the leading. Yeah, and to keep sharing these stories and to build this narrative, you know, it's the work that we're both engaged in is... Yeah. How do we raise platforms for these ideas and, and keep expanding and building on yep. this narrative that's evolving? But Damo, how how's that been the response to the film and the community that you've built there? Is that alive and well and and pushing ahead? Can you give us an update? Uh, yeah, that's that's been the extraordinary thing of, of the film. Like, who who's seen it? Aside from that, in terms of you know box office or schools or whatnot. Um, the response to the impact campaign and the bringing to life of the solutions of the film, again, I think is testament to this idea we were talking about earlier of using hope as a motivator and to get people into action. Um, you know, whether it's, I think a lot of people know the seaweed platform that we've started building down in Tasmania, which purely came about from people giving donations and allowing that to happen. 
that's now in the water, the kelp's in the water, it's being tested, it's growing really well. We've even tied it to some of the, the fish pens down there and it's, we're finding that it's absorbing the nitrogen from the, so it's actually cleaning the water um, as it's growing. Uh, there's now the formation of an Australian seaweed industry. We're making a video for them at the moment and they're looking to raise $10 billion in the next sort of 20 years, that's sorry, 10 years to get that happening. There's a seaweed symposium, a global one that's happening. Um, there's a lady in Devon in the UK that's just got approval to build a huge seaweed farm uh, off the coast there. Um, so this thing is, you know, you know, it's not just all us, but it's, it, it just it shows that once people you plant that idea or that solution, there's incredible momentum that can come. Uh, the regenerative agriculture story, I mean, again, you probably know that yourself, Barry. It's just amazing what's going on there. The government, in fact, are about to um, put a lot of money into doing some trials and testing a whole lot of cases around the country because there's just now um, a raft of studies showing that they are economically more viable and more profitable than regular farming because the, the regen farmers are using less inputs and less chemicals on their land, plus the, the, the higher quality of their produce means that they're getting higher um, market value is that lots of farmers are now switching just for, for profit. So that's happening right around the world. Uh, last year we saw a record amount of money was given to um, girls' education and reproductive rights around the world. It was a record figure, um, which is, again, very encouraging. Um, and also, as you've seen, the amount of tree planting initiatives that are going on, um, even our community, we've hit 20,000 trees, I think, yesterday, just from people doing their searches on Ecosia, which is great. But we've seen um, through coronavirus, uh, Pakistan have re-employed about 80,000 people to plant uh, 10 billion trees across Pakistan to mitigate climate change. Um, there's so much good stuff going on. It's, it's extraordinary. We just, um, it just doesn't make the national news, unfortunately. It's, um, it's not evocative enough. It's, 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 it's a good story. So, um, yeah, so many things like that. And, you know, we've now hit uh, with just 940,000 kids have been taught the 2040 curriculum materials across Australian schools. So, that to me is probably the best story, um, the feedback, the letters we get, uh, kids sending in their own projects. We've got a group that are making um, seaweed hoodies at the moment. They've got the, the seaweed fabric from Germany and they're making seaweed hoodies with Join the Regeneration written on them. Um, you know, there's just, it's just awesome. And this is what happens when you plant some positive ideas in people's heads and not tell them how bad things everything are, everything is. They then come up with their own genius and creativity and then add to that and who knows what you can create. So you know, that's what keeps me going. The question in the chat was, do you think it's been long enough? Um, of course it's not enough. I mean, look, it, the statistics show that we're going to drop, our energy use is down by about 30%, which means our emissions are going to be down by about 8% this year, which is quite a huge jump. It'll be the largest jump we've ever had since World War II. But given that to meet our Paris goal, we've got to drop by 7% every year, we got to keep doing this, basically, and more if we're going to actually get the, the results we want of this better future. So um, one of the most sort of, I guess, arresting stories for me was um, a Stanford group that did a study in China that said that they lose about 1.2 million people every year from air pollution, um, deaths mm, from air pollution. Wow. And they have posited that the, the coronavirus has prevented 77,000 deaths because of the drop in air pollution. So more lives have been saved um, than have been lost by coronavirus. So I would argue, do, don't we have a moral obligation to not go back to business as usual, to not return to normal as fast as we can unless we, we fix those kind of problems? And I know other countries are doing that. Uh, we've seen Milan have just um, implemented bikeways and walkways because they want to drop their air pollution. Even this morning, the UK government announced yeah, a 
$2 billion package um, to make uh, to begin a new era of cycling and, and walkways, which was their, their quote. So, you know, this is going to have an effect. We're seeing at a policy level already this is having an impact. So, but, yes, it's not nearly enough, um, you know, but I think we've got to accept and, it, and our politicians are in such a tricky position is that historically the second wave of these pandemics have been worse as well. So there is a risk that we open up too, too soon. We're all a bit complacent. It's fine now. Let's just get back to work. This second wave comes through us very quickly. So that's not to alarm people. It's just for us to be very cautious that there's the possibility, the very real possibility, we'll all be locked down again in two months from now um, and have to go back and do it again. That's just definitely a pathway that's that, that's possible. So. Um, even when we do come back, we're just going to do it with, with caution. Um, um, but as I said, a lot of people, my daughter included, they don't want to get back in a hurry. They're kind of enjoying this time. She's not that keen to go back to school. A lot of our friends are enjoying this time with their families, but I know that's a very privileged position to say that. Um, but, you know, I think that there are a lot of learnings and a lot of silver linings to, to what has been a difficult time for people. I'm just going to say there's so many awesome resources that people are sharing. We'll, um, we'll put that up on the Dumbo Feather website and maybe even get some of this chat out to everyone listening. Damon, how can people tune into the film if they haven't already? What, what, what should we be following? Give us some. It's probably some kind of free pirated copy on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> if you're in Bali, probably grab a DVD from someone on a street vendor. <laughs> um, yeah, look, it's, yeah, it's pretty easy to see these days. I think all the platforms are showing it now, Google and iTunes and all those ones. Um, but we're still doing sort of online community screening, so lots of people are still doing events where it's a group watch, so you can watch it with, you know, 100 other people and then have a, a Q&A or a discussion afterwards. If you're overseas, uh, we open in America on the 5th of June, which is quite exciting, and that's quite a big... We've got quite a few virtual events going on there with some pretty wonderful guest speakers, um, and the film is now out and available in Europe, so UK, France, all those places. You can now get it on DVD or stream it on their um, channels. And there's a few TV stations like Italy and stuff that are doing screenings as we speak. Awesome. Mm. Awesome. Damon, thanks so much. Thanks, thanks everyone for joining much. in. Thanks, thanks everyone. everyone.